I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Today we are going to have another one of those huge discussions that have become really quite popular amongst listeners. Folks might have seen, if you follow me on Twitter, that a few weeks back I put out a question about what is the greatest painting on or from the Napoleonic era and got a whole host of brilliant suggestions in response. So I decided, well, hey, why don't we actually sit down and have a mature conversation about it? Or at least as mature as is feasibly possible when you have certain Napoleonic commentators in the room. Not that I'm making uh, any eyes at people like Josh, for example, no. Uh, joining me, therefore, this evening are, as we've said already, the well, kind of everybody's favourite um, person with generalised history knowledge and knows many things, Josh Proven, as I tend to call him, the master of adventures in history land. Josh, how are you doing? You are on mute. I will, I, will, I will unmute myself and answer that, that very generous introduction. I'm doing very well, thanks. <laughs> Has your um, book come out? Because I've just added Wild East to the Napoleonicist bookshop, um, which folks can hear about at the end of the episode. I won't waste time on that now. But the other ones, the... Yeah, the um, I, am in, I am in the middle of re revisions on the, on the to-be-released one. So it will be appearing shortly if I do my job right. Or Fantastic. Andrew Bamford will start hitting me over the head with things. Good to know. Nice that he's keeping you in line. We are also joined by Jacqueline Reiter, another prolific Napoleonicist on Twitter, who folks will remember from a few weeks back is an expert on uh, Earl Chatham and also significantly is writing that biography of uh, Popham. How did I manage to even hesitate to mention Popham's name? <laughs> He'd be disgusted. Um, Jacqueline, how are you doing? How's your book writing going? I'm very well, thank you. It's it's going a lot better now the archives are open again, thank you. <laughs> Tends to help, doesn't it? Uh, it's it's amazing that we managed to sort of have withdrawal symptoms from being surrounded by dusty pieces of paper. We are also joined 
today by Gareth Copeland, a history buff from Canada, who is also a trainee history teacher, and folks will hopefully be aware of his comments on Napoleonic matters on Twitter. Gareth, welcome as a Napoleonicist newbie. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And last but by no means least, we also have another Napoleonicist newcomer, Andre Loes is a history teacher in France and is the presenter of the podcast Parole d'Histoire and he did have to try and give me lessons on pronunciation because as we've established my pronunciation of of all things not in English is is appalling as actually is my pronunciation of things in English but that's another thing entirely. Andre spectacular to have you on I've really enjoyed our interactions on Twitter up till now how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. And I have to uh, preface by saying that I'm not at all a Napoleonic buff. I'm a specialist of the First World War, but uh, still very interested in uh, and looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic. It's great to have you all. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a good one. We've got a, a great topic to discuss. So let's jump in at the deep end. Jacqueline, I am not going to spoil things for anyone, even though I do know about the, the selections that everybody's gone for. Take it away with, with your um, greatest painting, if you will, or paintings, or painter. You know, you've got many options here of the, or about the Napoleonic era. Well, um, I, I went for someone slightly different, um, because the, the first thing I thought of when, when you asked the question, what is the greatest painting? I thought, well, it's got to be something from the Napoleonic era. It's, got, it's not something painted afterwards, um, commemorating it, a history painting. That tells you more about the people who painted the history painting than it does about the era. Um, and then I thought, what paintings do I think of when I think of the Napoleonic era? And obviously there were um, some, uh, some great paintings, which I think we're going to hear about later as well. Um, but the one I went for in the end was something that stuck with me ever since I went to an exhibition um, at the age of about 16 in Washington, D.C. about this chap, um, Louis-Léopold Boilly, um, who, um, as you can see, impressed me so much I bought the book of the exhibition. Um, <laughs> there were two paintings particularly that I wanted to talk about because Boilly is very much um, uh, painting life. So he paints the Napoleonic era. He doesn't paint Napoleon, he doesn't paint other people. He does that too, but he paints the Napoleonic era. So when I think of um, a painting that demonstrates the era itself, I think of um, so society, the people, um, everyday people walking the street, and that's what you get with Boye. Um So the two paintings I picked, um, and I'm gonna have to look at the names because I can never, they're quite long. Well, one of them is quite short. It's a game of billiards, which um, obviously uh, shows a group of people playing a game of billiards. Um, and the first thing you notice is that it's pretty much equal parts men and women, um, which I think is quite unusual. Um, and they're all having a lot of fun. Um, one of this book that I've got here, which I'm looking at right now, just sort of cribbing from it, um, seems to suggest that it's entirely about sex. I'm not entirely sure this is true. I think there's a lot of that in it, um, but I think it's more about having fun and just enjoying life. And I think one of the most significant things about this painting is that it is really showing normal people, middle-class people, people that you and I might meet in the street, um, 
doing something that until not very lo uh, long previously to the painting having, having been done, probably wouldn't have been able to play billiards very much. It was very much an aristocratic game. So it kind of it encapsulates the France of the period. Um, and you know, just, just look at the picture. They're, they're, they're going to talk to you. They're, they're in mid-conversation. There's a bit of an argument going on on the left. Um, there's a guy peering down a woman's decolletage on the right. Um, and obviously there's a lady st uh, leaning over in a rather suggestive position to take a, a, a shot at uh, the billiard ball in the middle. Um, it's, it's just marvelous. You can stare at it for hours. Um, and one last thing to notice on this one is that uh, Boyi usually puts himself in these paintings and he's just in front of the door, slightly to the left, um, looking directly at the viewer with a slight smirk on his face. Um, so that's that one. And the other one I wanted to talk about is, uh, this one's the one with a long name, um, the public in the Salon of the Louvre viewing the painting of the sack. And what I really like about this one is that it's got a very iconic painting in it, the, uh, the coronation of Napoleon, but it's not center stage. It's at the back. Um, it's, it's very much there, but it's not what the painting is about. The painting is about the people in front of it. And again, um, to me, this kind of shows that the period isn't just about people like Napoleon or the Duke of Wellington. It's also about the people who lived through it, who saw everything happening and who had to experience um, a 22, 23 year long war and get through it somehow. Um, and all these ordinary people are just looking at this painting. You, you don't know what they're thinking. Some of them are probably thinking, wow, this is amazing. Some of them are probably thinking, I need the bathroom. Others are probably thinking, who are these people? Um, you know, you just. <laughs> um, there is a soldier on the left with his wife um, looking at a, what's probably a key of the painting. So he's he's checking out the people who, who are in it. Um, possibly he knows some of the people in it, I don't know. Um, I just love the costumes in this one. There are some unfeasibly enormous hats in it. Um, there's a guy right in the middle with a huge hat. You've got to wonder whether the people behind him can actually see the painting at all. Um, and and the, the colours, they're just so vibrant. Um, and again, Boyi is in his own painting. He's right on the right-hand side with the pair of specs. Um, I, I just love the detail. Um, so to me, these two paintings are what typifies the Napoleonic era. I wouldn't necessarily use the word greatest painting to describe them, um, but they are very much the most interesting paintings, I think. So I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to let someone take, take over from here. Well played, Jackie. I mean, it's it's a pitch after my own heart because as we've established many times, I do love that kind of ordinary people perspective on history. I have to say, Josh was looking very flustered at the description of uh, what was depicted in the billiards painting. Um, I had the sense that he was uh, going to need the smelling salts if you uh, continued with too much detail. <laughs> I, I think I think flustered is a bit of a strong term. I did I did think that it was interesting how you how, how you um, you 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 uh, you progress from from describing the pose of the lady bending over the billiard table to being able to stare at it for a long time. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Jacqueline is resolutely refusing to make comment there, but is uh, in uh, for folks who aren't watching this on YouTube is is almost in stitches about this. Um, it, it's it's a very strong contender to start off with. Um, I I guess my first question would be why does Boyi paint? Who's he painting for? Who's the patron? Who is it? Who's commissioning this artwork? And does that have an implication on how we should view him as an artist? actually know whether he was painting these for anyone um i have to admit um i get the feeling that even if he was commissioned to paint it i think he was mostly painting it for himself i think he had fun um one of the things that um this book was talking about when i, I had a read about uh, particularly the game of billiards is apparently he went through several iterations um meticulously moving the figures around um until they took on the um the positioning and the final piece. Um, so I think, it, you know, he clearly thought about it, he clearly designed it in a particular way, and um, it looks like he really enjoyed painting them. Um, the, uh, um, the one with the David painting in the background, um, again, I'm not quite sure why he painted that. I think it was mainly just a commemoration of a, a fairly highbrow event. Um, as far as I can gather, the painting was not shown very often um, and it was fairly um, strongly orchestrated when it was shown. Um, and again, I think he was having a bit of fun. I think he was contrasting the, the, the very, very formal, very um, stylized portrait of Napoleon and his court um, with the people. Um, and trying to say, you know, who is, what's going on here? Who is more important? Is it Napoleon the emperor or is it the people he's reigning over? It's probably a bit of both. Um, he did paint portraits um, and I think he painted Robespierre. Um, he painted a few other people as well. Um, I'm not so keen on his actual portraits, personally. Um, I think that you can get the sense that he's a bit cramped creatively with them. Um, some of them are really beautiful, but some of them are just kind of, okay, he really doesn't want to be doing this, I don't think. I think he's just doing this for the money. Um, but with these big portraits with all the people and all the life, I think he's really putting himself into it. And in terms of impact, you know, when art critics, of which I have to say I am not an art critic, um, I just kind of look at things and have a, a very kind of um, what's the word, plebeian, shall we say, perspective on, that's a nice painting, that's done really well, I can't draw like that because I still draw like a four-year-old with stick men, so I'm, I'm really not in a position to critique anybody's paintings, but people who know these things, what do they say about Boye's impact and, and his style and his contribution to art during this period? Um, uh, well, I think he's pretty well known as someone who does um, he painted, he, he was of the era, so he painted the, the people who wouldn't have been painted before, the middle classes, um, the lower classes, um, people who wouldn't have been in a position to be painters um, in the past. Uh, so I think he's significant in that. He wasn't obviously the only one doing it, um, but he was a bit of a, a historian with, with his paintbrush. He's depicting everyday life um, but it's little microcosm of what was happening. Um, and I think that's what makes him so significant to me. I, I'm not an art critic either. 
um, I don't really know much about art criticism. I don't know how Boye stands in that world, um, but I got the impression from reading up a little bit about him that he is quite well known for having this touch which sort of brings, um, brings people to life. Um, and uh, he's quite significant in some other ways as well. I was, I was quite curious to see that he was the man who invented the term blade, for example. Um, I don't know if you know what that is. It's where you take something which looks like it is real, sort of coming at a, a three-dimensional object. Um, I, I remember when I went to see the exhibition, um, they had a lot of these that Boye painted in the exhibition. And some, there was a smashed glass um, with loads of shards of glass lying about and it looked properly real <laughs> he, he was uh, you know but th this guy could paint he really could I don't need to be an art critic to be able to show uh, to say that um and uh, um so you know he, he he did make his mark in a in, in an artistic way as well as um in an appealing way um I, he's not the most famous painter of the period but I think he's the most relatable one Okay, now let me open it up to the floor. If folks got any questions that they want to, to put to you. I have no particular questions, so to speak. Uh, I, like uh, Jackie was saying, I, I don't actually know very much about him. I have seen the paintings before and I absolutely love the billiard table one. I love these, 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 this particular style of art where it is a, essentially a crowd scene um, and there is, you can spend hours just looking at all the little details and all the faces and all the stories um and so i completely agree with the brilliance of of this selection i i, I absolutely adore them i agree andre yeah i think i think it's very fitting to start with um with paintings that are not uh, of napoleon himself because it also reflects uh, in a sense a shift in the historiography uh, farther away from the great man and and looking into uh, the people, looking into uh, daily lives, and uh, I think that's a that's a large trend, at least in French historiography of the the first empire nowadays. So I think it's very uh, it's a very good choice in, in that sense. Thank you. I also think it's a brilliant choice, and uh, one of the things I really liked about it was that the um, if you think of Napoleonic artwork, almost everyone immediately jumps to Jacques Louis David and to see. The coronation painting um, in the background, but it's not the focus there. Really lends a sense of of realism uh, to the painting itself, and shows that no, it's the propaganda is not real. What's real is what's in the foreground of the painting. Jacques Louis David is just—he's nothing. Like yeah, he's a good painter, but his work is is not reality. This is reality here, and something that I really enjoy when looking at it. This is turning into a staggeringly harmonious episode. I'm not sure we've ever had a situation where we just turned around and gone, that's a great choice. Let's see if we can keep that kind of positive momentum going. Jackie, thank you very much for that. We're now going to go to Andre. We've talked about something that perhaps people wouldn't have associated with the Napoleonic era per se, even though it is of the time. You've gone for something which people will associate with the Napoleonic era for a very good reason. Take it away. 
Absolutely. Even though it was not painted uh, during Napoleon's lifetime, it was painted in 1840. And it's the painting by uh, Paul de la Roche, um, who um, lived in the first half of the 19th century. And it's called uh, Napoleon at Fontainebleau. Uh, and it's uh, his first abdication uh, in late March, early April of 1814, just after the his, his final defeat, the invasion of France, and um, right about the moment that Paris was being taken by the, the Allied forces. So uh, I, I like this painting because it's also in sharp contrast to all the imagery that we're used to. Of course, uh, Gareth mentioned David, and uh, we could also point to uh, Gros, uh, Ingres, Gérard, all these either dashing pictures of the, the young Bonaparte crossing the Alps, uh, very thin general uh, leading his army into battle, or very regal coronation pictures uh, uh, with full regalia, with full uh, main coat, etc. So uh, this is, of course, in sharp contrast because it's the, uh, it's the dejection of defeat. He's uh, exhausted. He's about to sign the uh, Abdication Act. He's, uh, he's gotten very fat. He's very obviously very weary. Uh, he has muddy boots because he's just uh, uh, off his horse and uh, in the middle of the night and unable to go to Paris, which is now occupied. Uh, he's thrown his hat on the, on the floor, his coat on a sofa, and he's obviously alone and probably feels betrayed. And it's, uh, it's a very, very poignant picture in a sense. And also, I think it, it goes very much um, along with the time, and we will talk about it a little, a little bit more. It's because we're in 1840, we're at the height of the Romanticism in France. And so it's uh, very much an image of a, uh, of a pathetic martyr, in a sense. And uh, it's very striking, in my opinion. Andre, thank you for that. That was a real tour de force on what is a, a brilliant um, painting. I have to say, this is another one that, you know, is, is kind of after my own heart in terms of, if, there are any, if there's any picture of Napoleon that I absolutely adore from this period, it's the De La Roche. Uh, that, that visceral kind of realism of, for somebody who couldn't have been there in the room with Napoleon to get the emotion on his face and what he must have been thinking at that moment in time is, is just incredible. Uh, you can keep uh, Rod Steiger in the 1970 Waterloo film and that sort of, outrage that that moment that he's captured in that painting of it's all over uh, it is just just incredible I guess I'm going to ask you the same question that I put to Jackie because it is kind of significant for all of, of these paintings in a sense who's Delaroche painting for first of all well, I think he's painting for the, um, the, the French public of the July monarchy. And I think this is a very important point. Uh, the July monarchy is the, the regime that uh, took place in uh, July 1830 after the restoration. So basically after uh, Louis XVI's two brothers uh, ruled and then uh, died or went to exile. So we, we have a new monarchy, which is a sort of a, a British inspired uh, parliamentary monarchy and, and uh, uh, which has a very different relation to the Napoleonic era than its predecessors, because of course, for the brothers of Louis XVI, well, Napoleon was the usurper. So the memory of Napoleon was a very touchy subject. And uh, Louis Philippe, uh, the, the king of the July monarchy is, is uh, in a very different position. He, in a sense, he needs uh, the Nap Napoleonic aura because he knows that uh, a lot of people in France are fascinated by it. It's the, also the time, the height of the writing of, uh, of Stendhal, of Balzac, of Dumas, of all these writers who have incorporated Napoleon into their, their own uh, romantic uh, depictions of the era. Uh, so I think uh, Louis-Philippe needs uh, very much uh, to, to draw on the glory and the prestige of the era. And it's no accident that this painting is in 1840. And it's the same year that uh, the, the French uh, monarchy uh, stages this 
enormous event, which is the repatriation of the body of Napoleon, uh, because uh, they managed to negotiate with the British that his body would be uh, repatriated from uh, Saint Helene. And uh, this turned into a huge celebration, and uh, uh, hence the the two invalides and uh, and uh, the sort of huge commemoration that surrounds it. It's a it's a very uh, it's it's both a snapshot of 1814, but it's also very telling about the context of uh, uh, the July monarchy in 1840. And how is the painting received by the French public when it goes on display? Well, it's uh, it's received, I think, um, ambiguously because Delaroche is uh, is a little bit in the middle. He's not uh, quite as romantic as uh, Delacroix or Jericho, uh, the other great leading French painters of the time. Uh, so he's not very well regarded in artistic circles who think that he's a bit too conventional. But he's also not painting the sort of uh, traditional battle scenes or traditional uh, uh, regal scenes that are associated with history. So he's in a much more intimate, uh, intimate tone. If you think of his other paintings, there's one of uh, uh, Charles I being insulted by Cromwell's soldiers. So he's very interested in these sort of little moments in time. Uh, almost intimate moments of uh, attention, uh, a character uh, facing destiny, and it's uh, it's not exactly, I think, the, the the majority sensibility at the time. Thank you very much. Let me open it up again to the floor, folks. Any questions? Any comments on on what is a serious contender? Well, um, once again. Whenever I talk about art, I never really like to criticize it terribly much. I just enjoy talking about it. So again, uh, I'm, in, I'm in full agreement that this is an iconic painting. It's probably one of the best known paintings of Napoleon. A lot of people, I believe, are surprised to know it is not a live portrait. Um, and for that very reason, it has to stand as a testament to to, to the Napoleonic era, because the subject, this is Fontainebleau, it's, it's, it's telling all of this, it's telling, trying to tell in one moment, the story of the last years of the war, of the Napoleonic wars, of Napoleon, and now hinting at what next. So it is, is a very powerful piece. I think the what, what's next component is very important as well, because, of course, uh, showing Napoleon on the verge of abdication is also a means of legitimizing the following regimes. So it's also a, it's also a nice touch there. Jackie? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, um, I have to say that uh, I didn't realize until um, you sent the picture that um, uh, it was not actually <laughs> painted at the time, um, it's amazingly done. Um, and it is one of the paintings, yeah, it's one, definitely one of the paintings that I associate with Napoleon. Um, so yeah, um, very definitely iconic. I would have to echo um, what uh, Josh and Jacqueline said in that it, it, is, it is definitely one of the most iconic paintings uh, of Napoleon. Um, I, I personally love it. I'm not a fan of Napoleon Bonaparte at all. So to see him kind of in that final like humiliation in 1814 is just a little bit cathartic for me. <laughs> but it's one of the things that um, that I found really interesting that you brought up, Andre, was that uh, he was that Delaroche was painting this for the um, the July monarchy in particular. And one of the questions I kind of had, and I'm not I'm not too sure about Delaroche myself, is that 
where was um, Delaroche and sort of his political leanings in 1830? Uh, was he, was he, um, he was clearly not a Bonapartist, um, but was he, was he Republican? Was he uh, a monarchist? Do we know where he kind of fits in in the, um, in the political uh, spectrum of uh, 19th century France? I don't know what, with any certainty, but uh, what, I, what I could suppose is that he was a moderate and he went along with different regimes and went along and sort of produced uh, ideological backdrop for, for different regimes. I know that he painted some uh, sort of official portraits for the, the royal family uh, in the 1830s. So uh, he was, uh, I think he was well introduced in, in the uh, elite, uh, elite of his time. Thank you very much, folks. I mean, yes, we, we've all, we're all, we're all very harmonious this evening. This is, this is an unusual feeling for me as a presenter. Normally there's a little bit of sort of ask an awkward question, but we're all on the same page. This is fantastic. I don't know how the listeners are going to choose uh, a favourite, but that's for them to decide and not something that I need to worry about, fortunately. Um, but yeah, as, as we say, the Delarache, that kind of that realism, the, the emotion. Um, and also, I'm completely with you, Gareth, as somebody who is quite outspoken about not being a fan of Napoleon, to, to be able to use that as a counterpoint to the great propaganda portraits, if you will, the, the Davids and so on, and say, okay, that's how the story starts. That's how Napoleon wants to present himself, but actually here's how it ends, is just incredible and, and really useful. Um, and I think it speaks to people uh, a, a great deal. I think it's quite hard to, to look at that painting and not just have a slight little drop of sympathy for Napoleon. And for all that I will say that, you know, 1813, 14 didn't need to play out in the way that he, it did. And a good chunk of that lies at, at his feet uh, in terms of not being able to secure, in my opinion, um, peace deals that, that potentially could have been achieved. Um, when you, you look at that, you really do get that, that kind of hit of, that's the human element of the man. And, and remembering that human element, I think is, is really important. So thank you very much for that, Andre. Okay, for folks watching on YouTube, you will have noticed that Andre has had to leave us. He needs to go an adult. That's part of the, the challenges of, of being a parent, I guess. But in the intervening kind of interlude, we've had a visit from the ghost of Popham, which has decided to inhabit a bug and then distract Jacqueline um, by making her small children squeal in, in disgust at this, this manifestation that's, that's appeared in their room. How have you dealt with this um, poltergeist? I hit him with a stick. You hit him with a stick. D does Popham yeah. complain about this, this treatment? Because he does talk um, to you. Well, he kind of made a little splodge. <laughs> the memorandum is coming. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be another one coming shortly, but um, uh, for now. <laughs> well, I'm hopefully <laughs> we'll have uh, pacified the ghost of Popham because we have now talked about him. So he's achieved his aims. Um, and hopefully he will now leave us in peace. Yeah. We're going to turn, yeah, we're going to turn next to Gareth. Now you've got something a little bit different for us. Take it away. Yes, so when I saw your post about what is the greatest uh, artwork of the Napoleonic period, uh, the first thing that jumps to the mind is uh, the Goyas, the uh, the Jacques Louis Davids. And then I immediately thought and I went, yeah, let's look for something a little bit more obscure because they get all the attention. And uh, one of the most obscure um, artists out there are the soldiers who were actually fighting in the campaigns themselves. Um, 
for those for those who uh, haven't read the memoirs, a lot of soldiers viewed themselves as global travelers in the 19th century. And so if you're reading a, a memoir from a soldier from India, for example, you'll often get very big descriptive um, uh, passages describing things like culture, uh, the temples that they come across, the state of harbors. They love to draw those, um, those images out. And the soldiers who had a creative side would often sketch them as well. Uh, and so it's mostly that we see it with the officers, but the young gentleman that I chose, I don't believe was an officer himself. He was, his name is Richard Temple, and he was uh, in the 65th foot, which was predominantly based in India during the Napoleonic uh, era. And he himself actually took part in some campaigns which are not as well known, specifically the Persian Gulf campaign of 1809 and the, uh, the 1810 invasion of, um, of Mauritius. So I guess I'll start with um, a little disclosure in that these aren't actually paintings that he had done. So I'm technically cheating, but uh, nevertheless, uh, Richard Temple chose to use uh, aquatint as his main uh, artistic medium. So it would be made predominantly on a printing press, but then hand colored with inks or paints. So that's kind of my justification for saying it's a painting. It's hand painted afterwards when it's printed. But uh, in 1809, there is the expedition to the Persian Gulf. Now, what happened in 1809 was that the British government thought that there was a pirating issue coming out from the city of Ras al-Khaimah, which is located in the modern uh, United Arab Emirates. And so the East India Company quickly worked with the British government and organized an amphibious campaign in which the Royal Navy and uh, various uh, army regiments would go and attack the, uh, the city itself to put an end to the pirate raids on the shipping. And so the 65th foot was uh, among the uh, regiments who was posted there. And when they arrived to Ras al-Khaimah, the, the invasion went mostly by the book. It was, it was considered something that was, it wasn't a disaster like Volcaren in 1809, which I'm sure Jonathan knows quite a bit about. Uh, this was a campaign that's considered uh, very successful. It suffered very light casualties, only about 70 British casualties altogether. And, uh, when the British showed up, they landed on the beaches of Ras al-Khaimah. Uh, they received grape shot coverage from some gunboats nearby and they raised the city to the ground. And so the first print that I wanna look at is from a collection called 16 Views of the Persian Gulf by Richard Temple. And this specific one is titled in great 19th century fashion, Rus al-Khaimah from the Southwest in the situation of the troops at half past 2 p.m., November 13, 1809. And this print shows the destruction of the city of Ras al-Khaimah. So in the background, you have a large cliff face which overlooks the city. And we see several pirate ships which are aflame, or I say pirate ships in quotes because there is a bit of dispute about that. We also see the city itself on flame and we can see British regiments that are in perfect formation on the, uh, the right-hand side of the image itself. Uh, but this image is more than just about glorifying the, uh, the campaign itself. It also has a bit of that human element, a bit of that reality with warfare. Because if you look in the bottom left corner, you can see that the British soldiers who are supposed to be uh, orderly are actually looting a house, which was very common across armies across, across the world in this time period. It was just part of warfare, unfortunately but it does give a little bit of um, perspective on that particular um, uh, aspect of war. 
And in addition to this particular print, the second one that I wanted to look at was of the Mauritius campaign in 1809. It was also an amphibious invasion. Uh, Mauritius was the last particular outpost of the French empire in the Indian Ocean. And frequently the French Navy would launch raids on East India Company shipping. And so much like at Ras Al Khaimah, the British East India Company coordinated with the government and the Royal Navy to create an amphibious campaign in that area as well. Uh, and it was also another textbook example of an invasion of, um, oh, sorry, of an amphibious invasion. But this actually, this image here called View from the Deck of the Upton Castle Transport is one of my favorite images of the Napoleonic Wars. It's actually my desktop image, which just goes to show how, how much I, I appreciate this one. It has a wonderful use of the color blue. And so in the foreground, what we see are soldiers who are waiting to board transports to row towards the, um, the island of Mauritius itself. And we see something that's a little bit different from the Ras Al Khaimah picture. In this one here, we actually see something that's a little bit more harmonious. The soldiers are having a nice, pleasant chat with the sailors. You can see some who are up on the rigging doing their jobs, but there's no sense of chaos like you get with the Ras Al Khaimah print. And if you look at the, um, the island itself, it's very romantic in its portrayal. It shows the island as something that's sublime. There's these ominous mountains in the distance and you can see all these rowboats heading out toward it. So there's kind of a, an illusion of a threat there, but uh, aside from that, it's a very harmonious picture overall. And it just goes to show you just how well this campaign went is that it appears very peaceful. We have to think of it, this is a time of war. And uh, this was something that was potentially terrifying for the men who were involved. So uh, it's one of the reasons I find it uh, particularly interesting myself. Gareth, thank you for another fantastic pitch. I'll give you a sense of how much I like the Mauritius painting. In 2019, I did a, a conference at King's College London uh, with Eamon O'Keefe and Will Fletcher, uh, both very good friends of mine. And we all decided that the conference image was gonna be the Mauritius painting because we just loved it that much. Um, so another one that just completely speaks to me. Um, not that I'm biased or anything, but uh, you know, it's, it's a great painting. What else, what else can you honestly say? I mean, I'm sitting here trying to think of what awkward questions I can ask you, um, which is quite difficult because it, it speaks so much to me, and particularly coming from a soldier, it offers a very different perspective. And yes, okay, you can make the argument to what extent is this a romanticized image? Actually, you've made the case that, you know, he's got plundering in the, the, the other one. So not hugely romanticized, you know, there, there's, there's some gritty realism in there. Um, I guess an obvious question is, what other examples do we have of soldiers painting during this period? And where does this fit in relation to others? Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I find the, um, the topic of soldiers' printing is one that um, I find is rather unexplored, but we do see examples coming up often in memoirs. So the officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Staunton St. Clair, did a lot of, um, of images. He did, uh, in his memoir, A Residence in the West Indies. He has quite a few images of uh, alligators, of giant snakes, uh, all sorts of um, terrifying creatures in the jungle itself. Um, he also did a print, actually, of uh, the Peninsular War, of just daily life, uh, what it's like to be in a garrison or into, in a camp while waiting on for the next um, order to march out. So in terms of, from what I've seen of, um, of soldier art in this time period, it's, it's pretty part of the course, I find. It's, it, it has a lot of the same details. It shows what a good campaign would be. It has an emphasis on order. Um, and I would have to say it has a little element of realism to it as well. So it's, it tries to blend the romantic with the grittiness, as, as you point out. And you talked about how it wasn't coloured until uh, quite a while after the events, I think it's fair to say, you know, when, when you're going through that production process and the aquatents. Um, is there a sense of it being doctored in that process? So were certain bits kind of left out of originals or is what we see actually the original sketch just put into a, a form that could then be um, processed that bit more easily? I think it is doctored. Uh, for sure. So the um, the campaigns that Richard Temple was in he, were they took place in 1809 and 1810, but these collections were not published until 1813. And I was speaking to a, um, a a fellow history student out there about the Mauritius print in particular, and she thought the idea was uh, had a little bit of a propaganda value in that um, 1813 is just on the heels of the disastrous retreat from Burgos during the Peninsular War. And so morale within the British Army was kind of at a low point. So, uh, soldiers who were in the Peninsular War were devastated that they just had to go back to where they started their, their campaigning year, that um, their campaign that year. And so this could have been something that was produced as a way of improving morale, saying, hey, we had this setback in Spain, but look what we've accomplished so far. We are catching, um, acquiring territory across the globe. But um, we don't know the answer for that one for sure. But it is an interesting thing to point out that it, it comes in in the aftermath of the retreat of Burgos. So I think there is a little bit of, of doctoring for that reason, for sure. Let me open it up to the others in the room then, rather than dominate the discussion. Josh, Jackie, what are your, your thoughts on this one? Uh, again, I'm a very large um, fan of soldier uh, artists. Um, you see an awful lot more of them coming into um, history books and things like that uh, from this period, well, from the late 18th century onwards, actually. This sort of starts around the American Revolution in, in terms of popularity of, so, of officers, especially sketching stuff, because officers are gentlemen and gentlemen are supposed to know how to sketch. 
and and paint and some of them are very talented at it actually and by the time you get to the Crimean War actually it's everybody's painting stuff um but um yeah the the the, the ones the Napoleonic Wars are, have this particular style about them that is very distinctive it's you know, all these soldiers are very well proportioned. They've got nice, elegant limbs. They're quite well. Uh, the formations in that very neat. And there's always some guy doing something, someone dying heroically somewhere in a, in a corner somewhere, um, uh, which is wonderful because these are soldiers like painting these things. So they're sort of alluding to. Uh, I'm I'm classically educated. I know how battle scenes work, and it, <laughs> you know they're trying to sort of appeal to what people understand as a battle, and at the same time using uh, what they've seen and what they know about soldiering to depict a piece. Uh, and of course, in, in the Peninsular War, you have people like Batty and um, Graham doing it as well. Very, uh, some nice uh, ones of the crossing of the Bidasoa, um, which is uh, rather good as well. So uh, I think it's a very original idea to go with soldier, um, soldier pa painting. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's also a very original uh, soldier to pick. And equally to then to just pick up on that point about you know everybody's very well proportioned, contrast that with Gilray, which is why I love Gilray and, and the other caricaturists of the period, where you have quite portly officers and, and emaciated rank and file, and, and all of these the proportions are are grotesque quite deliberately um, to cast a, a very different light on things. Jackie. Um I I, I really love these. Um I have a big question though, which is um did presumably these were based on sketches that he did on the spot but then published afterwards. Who published them? That is a very good question. I could not find the um the original ones myself. So the ones that I did come across were digitized uh through a database. Oh. Yeah. But, uh, I could not find uh the publisher info for them in particular. Okay. So yeah, I, that I is one that's that's yeah. definitely one of those mysteries looking to be answered. Because I was just wondering who would have been buying them, um, and presumably the publisher would have been clued to that. But, uh, and you're not going to believe this, by the way, but there's a possum bingo moment here. No, <laughs> no, I don't oh, yeah. believe it. <laughs> oh wait, wait, it'll be one of the campaigns, isn't it? But, but hang on, I mean, I, yeah. I say I don't believe it. No way. No, well, why are we surprised? If you, if, if you find a stupid island that nobody else cares about, then Popham is going to have a plan to conquer it, all right? Yeah, um, I, I have to work this out still, but he had a plan that he drew up in 1807 to attack Mauritius. And as far as I can see, the plan that was actually put into action was almost step-by-step step what he proposed, except that he wasn't there. That was part of his proposal. He was going to be there. Um, <laughs> um, so that is the pop and bingo moment. I've now shut up about pop and. <laughs> the man is that He's just masterminded everything. <laughs> He's like the sand in your picnic when you go down the beach. You know. <laughs> <laughs> now here's the ants. We've covered this. <laughs> Gareth, thank you very much for a, a brilliant contribution. Last but by no means least, we turn to the master of history land, Josh. Right, well, uh, let's let's get things rolling for the finale then, shall we? Um, I think I have read somewhere, and I tend to agree with it, that a great piece of art uh, must achieve a few things to be recognised as such, and the, the artist must successfully capture a time, 
place and an emotion in a way that allows the viewer to realize it all in a glance and at the same time allow them to reach this uh, this this sort of realization uh, through 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 uh, through contemplation right so you can you can immediately get everything and then stare at it for ages and 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 if and sort of it'll come to you now, uh, when when the when the good our generous and good host asked me to, to, to if I had a had a pick for this, um, my immediate reaction, as as what someone said earlier, was actually uh, to champion David, uh, because surely he captured all these things a dozen times, and and widespread agreement would attend me, if I was to say Napoleon crossing the Alps or the coronation were the greatest pieces of art created in this era. But then I thought it again as my own nature mocked me for choosing a subject so fully in the limelight and so drenched with imperial glory. Um, at a human level, I, I think the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars were disastrous events. Because of these cataclysms, millions of lives were altered, changed, uh, and just downright ruined. And, and that made me look again at David's conquerors and odes to power and classically inspired triumph. This is the work of a genius. I think that's true, but a, a, um, a sycophantic one, glorifying, almost deifying Napoleon like a Roman emperor. Um, apologies for that weird sound there. That was some Dell update. <laughs> it's David haunting me for my, <laughs> calling him a sycophant. <laughs> yes. Um, it portrays nothing, his stuff portrayed nothing of the misery that, that despite the politics, moralizing, and personal beliefs lay behind the imperial splendor and imagery of a new Caesar. Um, uh, there's a quote that goes something like, know therefore um, that war is an accursed thing, which the wise man uses only if he must. I think that was written by uh, a Chinese poet in the Tang dynasty called Li Bai. So when I grew up, basically, uh, and my appreciation of military history came to decide that war was indeed a bad thing and a nightmare, and yet, uh, you know, I, I I couldn't I couldn't go with them anymore because none of the great pieces of his art show this trauma, except in a highly stylized and melodramatic manner sometimes, and almost nobody does actually. Even the soldiers, they they hint at the trauma. You can see it but you can't feel it because you're not a soldier. You don't know what it's like. Even the great artists, portraitists, stuff like that, you don't see this except one. Pause for effect. And so my mind turned to that shadowy place that I indulge in times of melancholy, that haunted quarter where I allow the nightmare images of Francisco de Goya to reside. I have a complicated relationship with Goya, um, but first, they're the epitome of everything I don't like about art. The colors are dark and ill-defined, and I used to think that the figures are squat and bulky and uh, as if the image is like distorted by a, a computer screen. Uh, and they were too graphic, I thought, and they were overrated. But as time went on, I began to change my mind to the extent that I now recognize the genius in what I previously despised, basically. Um, and that's why I now present as my choice for the Napoleonic 
era's greatest artwork, Goya's second and third of May. So the art critic Robert Hughes says that in war, of the portrayal of it, ineloquence is best. And what does that mean? I think it means just show the viewer what it is. Don't try and tell too complicated a story. It's war, show, show the war. And in the painting of the 2nd of May, you see the citizens of Madrid at the height of the rioting that sparked the Peninsular War. And despite that, despite the fact this is a rendering of a real event, laden with historical insignificance, Goya shows as a brawl. The composition is, is pure chaos, uh, not studied chaos. It's just pure, randomized, brutish, traumatized violence, throwing out everything the last four to 500 years of artistic form and doctrine and then stamping on it. Um, the farthest thing from the, the, from the lovely works of Bailly or, or, or Hogarth or people like that, in that he zooms much closer into things, so close that the lines begin to blur. And people are grappling with each other haphazardly. No one is posing here. They're all just fighting and dying, desperately trying to end each other before they're ended themselves. Um, while they, you know, they're slipping over a lot of, you know, well, you know, blood-covered street. It's, 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 you know, it's not a pleasant picture, this, this attack on the Mamelukes. Uh, and, you know, even the Mamelukes themselves, they're just trying to cut their way through uh, to safety while behind them a crowd boils up the street and uh, all but devours one of them uh, like a pack of animals. There's not a shred of classical heroism politics or morality to be seen in it because everybody knows what it is. Goya trusts his audience. You know this is the 2nd of May. You know we all are very proud of this, but this is what it was like to feel the energy of that day. This is what it was like to be there. There's not a recognizable hero. No one is obviously the protagonist. The story is simple and brutal, like I said, and it's fear and horror swirling around in a big mess. And yet, although these things all strike you when you see it, this is the lesser of the two paintings created as a set in 1814 to commemorate the start of the great struggle against Napoleon when Goya was a deaf, tortured, misunderstood artist in his 60s. This is the, I think, I think truly, I think the greatest painting of the era and it is Trestimeo. Um, and if war is indeed an accursed thing, then Francisco de Goya uh, was an eloquent translator of its effects. Um, in the middle of his life, he had been struck by an illness, uh, which, like I say, it nearly killed him and it, it left him almost completely deaf. And this had the effect of not only leaving him in doubt as to um, about his own mortality, but it imprisoned him in a dungeon of his own imagination, which got a, became a very dark place. Um, when his when this piece is paint was painted, it was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Nothing like it would be seen again for uh, quite a while because it was deeply misunderstood. Uh, widely acknowledged by many art historians and critics today as one of the greatest works of art in the world and, and a source of parody and inspiration to some today in popular media and things like that. Some even say it's the beginning of modern art. Um, the Tres de Mayo is so revolutionary, it almost defies explanation. And it's almost so modern to look at it. You almost forget it is from this period, that it was painted in 1814. 
Uh, it takes everything that was so impactful about its companion piece and magnifies it, conjuring time, place, and emotion with, with soul-piercing intensity. Everyone is anonymous, the line of French executioners with their backs to the viewer, to the miserable group of suspected insurgents. The difference in this painting is that there is a distinct focal point and that you might call a hero is, is present, except he doesn't want to be a hero. His expression is pained and full of fear. He's on his knees and his hands are outstretched in the way people do when they are frantically begging for something not to happen. The last thing in the world this man wanted to do was die for Spain. In the chiaroscuro of the lantern, his clothes almost seem to glow, making some conclude this is an allusion to the crucifixion of Jesus. But meanwhile, those beside him are cowering and cringing and praying, knowing that they will soon join the pile of mangled corpses not a foot away. And in the background, those awaiting their turn before the muskets look away or look on onto what will be their own future. Uh, it's a, the darkness behind them is, is blending in. And I think there's like a trail of more people waiting to come up and it's, it's and this is a historical event. Nobody painted this way in terms of historical event. This is ridiculously dark. This is not glorifying something. This is not glorifying national myth. This is not, you know, heroic priests waving crucifixes and senoritas standing over the bodies of their sweethearts defying the French. And somehow Goya is, is taking us to that place and asks the viewer to respect the trauma and the sacrifice, not the glory. And I think he conveyed the horror of that moment with, with bone crushing force. This is what he was saying. If this is what it's like to die for your country, it's largely anonymous, it's seemingly arbitrary and random. For generals, sure, the, an emperor's glory is rearing horses, waving flags, thousands of men in classical gestures, but for ordinary people, glory looks like this. It's uncomfortably close and there is no way out. The tragedy of the entire Napoleonic Wars, I think, not just Spain, is right there. For the friends and family of the Spaniards being shot down, life will change forever. And the lives across the continent will never be the same again. No other artist ever portrayed like this, such a moment like this, a patriotic moment, a proud moment, a nation building moment like this. It broke every rule of historical painting. And did I mention how hard it is to look at? Uh, and at the same time, Goya does this without alienating anybody but those who prefer to look at lovely things basically. And I think therein lies the power because the, it's an image and it gets a reaction. I don't actually like to look at it. <laughs> um, but that's there and again, another, another sort of facet to it. We all like to have fun with our subjects. I myself can allow the reality of the conflict to sort of become distance as I discuss stuff about argue or argue stuff <laughs> about uh, uniforms and strategy and tactics and politics, biographies and stuff like that. Uh, but because without war photography, it's, it's so easy to lose sight of the burnt out buildings, and the lifeless bodies and, and all these things that cover the landscape of a war zone. But when I allow get things to, to get too, to, to get too sanitized, I guess, I can sober things up pretty quickly uh, by tremulously approaching that shadowy place and taking a look inside. The Napoleonic Wars are just that, I think, uh, wars. And unlike most other artists of the time, 
even some of the soldier artists, and certainly more than David, Goya knew that. If I was in a lecture hall right now, I would be giving you a standing ovation for that, Josh. That was an absolute mic drop. Thank you, because it would have been very easy to, to do Goya the easy way, you know, the realities of war, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you took us through it by, blow by blow, um, and that was phenomenal. So genuinely, thank you for that. Um, I, the one thing I would say is that it wasn't just your subconscious that um, encouraged you to ditch David. There was also a second conscious in that uh, like decision. Two guys on my shoulder. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and that other guy was me saying, but you're not known for doing the predictable. Why are you going for the David? And I'm sure you were well aware that had you gone for the David, the, the thing I would be kind of pushing back at you is, yes, but it's propaganda. Um, so well dodged on, on that score. Um, but yes, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's so visceral, as you say. El Trestamayo is is a, the darkness, in a way, is what kind of strikes you. It sort of sucked all of the light out of the scene. Um, and as you say, you kind of you've got the the odd lantern. You, everything sort of almost clandestine, apart from those who are awaiting execution. Um, and, and you've also dealt with the obvious question, which is to what extent is this a romanticized betrayal? But ultimately, it's not. Um, so I'm, I'm exposing my biases here, uh, not least because had I had to pick one to do tonight, I would either have gone for Lady Butler's um, infantry squares at Catra Bra, or I would have gone for El Trestamayo uh, for exactly the reasons that you outlined. I guess reception. Where do we draw the line between how we as historians look at the reception, at how we receive Goya, knowing what it, it um, encapsulates, and artistic reception? And is there any sort of pushback about the styles uh, that he's employing? Because as you say, you know, we don't see anything like this for a long time. I mean, the, the next one that obviously springs to mind for me not being a, a huge art buff, I have to admit, is the gassed um, soldiers from World War One, the, the ones who, who've gone blind and they're, they're all in that line, hands on one another's shoulders. It's, it's not really until that that I can think of something as iconic that we see again. So what's the, the, um, the, the critical reception, I guess, at the end of this very long question slash comment? Um, as far as I'm aware, uh, the reviews were mixed, to use an internet term. Um, a lot of people didn't like the brutalist kind of portrayal of what was supposed to be a very sort of glorious patriotic event. Um, they also, a lot of people of sort of like you would call the Spanish Academy painters thought that it just wasn't good, um, technically speaking, because of the way Goya was painting at that time. This is not to say he was a bad painter because even by the standards of, of classical standards, he was an excellent painter. And when he was, before he went deaf, um, he painted beautiful portraits and lovely sort of crowd scenes as you see in the many 18th century and early 19th century um, drawing rooms and things like that. But his new style, this darker style was much rougher and much more 
uh, personal and sort of uh, exhibiting um, uh, very, very modern ideas, what we would now consider uh, high art. But definitely it was mixed. A lot of people didn't like it. It was, it was misunderstood. And I think there is a point there, Paul, in the, in the sense that people didn't want to remember the war this way in Spain. It was painted for the government. It was Goya's own idea to paint the Dasi Tres de Mayo, but it was, but he did it in in, a Goya, in Goya's own way as well, and that upset a lot of people because they were expecting something more like David. Why can't we have, you know, uh, people? sort of ripping open their shirt and saying, shoot me here or something like that. Why can't we have something that we can sort of revel in? Why this dark, why this darkness? But at the same time, I think it's inescapable that because he was brave enough to paint this this way, you do get a better idea, I think, of certainly this event. And, and what war really, really speaks to, rather than yet another um, the coronation of Napoleon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm interested by what you say about the, the difference in style, because I think I was possibly at the National Gallery and I saw something by Goya and I thought, that's very different to the Goya that I know, because I approach this from the, the horrors of war. Um, collection and particularly Dos and, and Tres de Mayo. Um, so at what point did he go deaf? I don't, I don't remember the precise date. He, he lived an awfully long time. He lived into the 1820s, was born in 1745. And he, it was almost in the middle of his life. Nobody knows what disease he got, but it almost killed him. And it left him deaf. And um, people think that the, his sort of the fact that he almost died himself and he was in a coma for a certain amount of time sort of influenced his much darker period. And I mean, if you think the disasters of war and, um, and the Das and Tres de Mayo are, are, are dark, you should really Google, you should really Google Goya's dark paintings. They're literally called that because uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> And let's open it up to the floor again, because I've hogged far too much of this. So Jackie, Gareth, what are your, your thoughts on, on Goya? It's a good pick. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Uh, it's not what I, I would have thought of immediately, I have to say. Um, but now that you've brought it up, kind of, yes, that, that is definitely something I've... Um, it's, I think it's partly because, um, like what you said, it's not really, it's so out of period in many ways. It's, it's very modern. Um, I, I was looking at this and I was thinking this is kind of like a proto-Guernica, almost. Um, uh, no, no holds barred, nothing. It's just um, grim. Uh, <laughs> um, I would take a bit of an issue with you about the um, uh, the chaos depicted in in the first one that you spoke of. The, 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 I'm not even going to try the Spanish. I can do French. Spanish defeats me totally. Um, if you look at the picture, it very definitely has a pyramid structure to it, um, which is quite a classical. I wouldn't say a trope, um, but just sort of 
what's the word I'm looking for? Not trope. Um, Tradition? Motif, device, um, that sort of thing. Um, These are arty sounding words. Yeah, it kind of draws the eye from one person to another. So I think there is definitely method to the madness in that one. Um, and I think that's maybe partly why the second one is more famous, um, because it is really, there's nothing classical about that one whatsoever. It's it's really, um, I'm going to use the word again, grim. Um, <laughs> and you, you spoke of the, the dark period, which um, is something um, my, my, my husband could tell more about that and he's a big fan of Goya's dark period and I didn't even know about it until he showed me some of the pictures oh my goodness gracious that is you know you, you think of um 18th century art and then you look at that and you think my goodness so this is what happens when artists get to do what they want <laughs> rather than what someone asks them to do um yeah. so I mean I don't really have a question as such it's more sort of Comment. <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, I was surprised to, to hear that the um, it was painted for the government because I thought I really thought this was from his dark period, something that he painted in in the sort of moments when he was feeling sort of gloomiest and uh, um, least. This, this was this was guy trying to be triumphal. <laughs> yeah, he didn't quite strike that note right, did he? But um, um, it's you know he he mm. definitely achieved his aim, he created something timeless and memorable. Um, so yeah, yeah for Goya there, but I can understand why they didn't like it at the time, but <laughs> it really has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. I think you're right as well with the, I, I do think you're right about the, the, the Das de Mayo. Um, and by, and, and by the way, I'd like to reassure you, these, the, the Dos and Tres de Mayo are not their official names. They have much longer Spanish names. This is just what they're, this is just what they're called uh, for shorthand. The disasters of war aren't even called the disasters of war. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that is very interesting that you picked out the, the pyramidal structure. Or I think, it is, I think it is a vague pyramidal structure. It's not terribly obvious. So even better kudos for spotting it. But because um, I think that speaks to his, like I said, his earlier period where he was much more conventional and he did do things in the way that his, because he painted, he was a court painter, he painted the blinking royal family. And I loved, I loved what one uh, art critic said about him that, um, uh, that he, you knew he was great because he could make um, that odious toad, um, Fernando VII, look half human. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. He, he does look pretty nasty in that portrait. <laughs> One portrait I'm thinking of. <laughs> Gareth, what about you? Goya is, as you put it, you don't like to look at Goya's work. Um, it's haunting. Uh, you can't, but it, as as Jacqueline pointed out as well, it's it feels so incredibly modern, in that Goya's work has, of all the artists in the period, I think, with the maybe the exception of the propaganda of David, um, Goya's probably had the longest lasting legacy. Um, it has been like I think of the legacy of Goya's painting much like the legacy of um, I believe it was West's uh, The Death of Wolf um, at Quebec, 
in that it's been replicated so many times. Um, just before we recorded this episode, actually, there was a little Twitter discourse going on about um, the French invasion of Mexico and the execution of uh, Emperor Maximilian, the Austrian emperor. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually have on the topic of Goya, here's a little image here, which cool. yeah. is it, it, Goya. It is heavily inspired by the, the Trestamon. Uh, directly, directly inspired. No doubt about it. And so it's, I think in terms of like the most poignant pieces of the Napoleonic era, I've, Goya is a hands down for me. It has the longest, um, the longest legacy and it's just so hard to look at. Um, it's probably the closest you can get to having a photographic representation of the, the Peninsular War in particular. And um, I think it's one that, um, that should become more synonymous with the Napoleonic War for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's funny you say that, because as I've been listening to this discussion, I'm thinking about the next War and Peace Conference and kind of there's a little tiny corner of my brain because I've always got tiny corners of my brain working on mental little projects, as (laughs) Jackie laughs knowingly. Um, And I'm thinking if I can get the rights to it, El Tresta Mayo, it has to be the conference image because it is just so as you say, so representative of, of a reality um, of, of warfare. And, and particularly, I think it, perhaps it, it strikes us more because these are civilians who are being executed. Um, if, if it was soldiers dying, then perhaps we wouldn't quite have the same reaction because we might accept that that is a reality of, of conflict. And perhaps it's the, the civilian side of things that just kind of jars with us a little bit. Um, but yeah, well played, Josh. Uh, a fantastic... Fantastic pitch, fantastic contender. Um, and we're all sitting here applauding you. Um, so we've been very harmonious tonight, which is really quite remarkable. Um, and we, we've all kind of complimented one another, but let's, let's see if there's any disagreement in the next little phase, which is I just want to quickly go around the room. Um, admittedly, Andre isn't able to, to chip in on this one and say, if you couldn't have your pick, and you had to have a second choice and you've got free reign or if you just want to go with an honorable mention rather than you know what would your second choice be who would it be jackie i'm going to spring this one on you first i'm really glad you asked me that actually because <laughs> i know exactly what i'm going to answer um it's uh, thanks to you actually the uh, the other day you posted that gilray cartoon of uh, napoleon and pitt carving up the uh the globe and having un petit souper. Um, and I looked at that and I thought, that's what I should have chosen. Um, <laughs> so that's what I'm going for now. Um, I'm sure everyone knows the one I'm talking about because it is that famous. It's the one with Pitt and Napoleon having their little supper, carving up the globe, Pitt taking the sea and Napoleon taking Europe, and they both look so happy about it. It's lovely. I love the Ray. He just totally floats my boat in every sense. I love Gilray. <laughs> yeah, 100% with you. Genius. <laughs> um, I mean, The Valley of the Shadow of Death is a very close second in terms of my all-time favourite uh, caricatures, and the one with the Spanish bull is probably my third. Um, so all, all my favourites are actually Gilray's, although he was by no means the only one of this period. Um, but yes, the plum pudding in danger, as you say. I always wonder if there's a bit of a dig at both sides in that though. I mean, there's a, there's a very obvious dig in that, you know, 
look at the two of you. You're as bad as each other. You're carving up the, the, the globe. But I do wonder if there's just this slight sense that Pitt sees the bigger picture. Because if you look at what they're doing, yes, Napoleon's carving off this nice labeled Europe. But what's Pitt doing? He's just taking half of the entire globe. You know, you can have that little slice. I'll have everything else. And I, I do wonder if there's that kind of dig of greedy Britain, but also Britain sees the bigger picture. I don't know if you'd see that in there or that's just my interpretation. I don't know. I mean, the one thing I noticed the other day when you put it up was that something I've not spotted before, which is that England or Britain, let's call it Britain because they would have called it England. I don't call it Britain because that's what we call it now. Um, it's right in the middle. It's not mm. cut up by either of them. Um, and that's got to be symbolic. Um, you know, kind of Britain just sitting there going, well, yeah, there's this war going on over here and there's all this stuff going on overseas that we don't know about. Well, we're just going to sit here and, you know, <laughs> hopefully nobody's going to come and invade, but we're just going to sit here and uh, sit tight and watch what's going on and find out what's going to happen. Um, so I don't really know what to think about that. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously the, both sides are being massively caricatured and <laughs> of course there's Napoleon who's tiny with a very large hat um yeah, you, you might be right about that um I'm not absolutely sure um Gilroy definitely did have a thing about the navy um so you could be right it's not something I've thought of Gareth, what about you? Either an honourable mention or a, a second choice? Well, I actually really like what Jacqueline brought up with the, uh, the propaganda images, but I would choose a different image myself. I believe it's called the British Invasion, in which King George III is the literal personification of, of Britain at the time, with the famous grenadier cap, and uh, the invasion being launched looks like George III defecating on France. And so it is... One of my favorite satirical images, uh, I really hope we can post an image of it on the, uh, the video here because it's just hilarious for one. But uh, in terms of the honorable mention I have, I'm gonna have to echo Josh and say um, uh, El Tresta Mayo, um, just purely for its uh, depiction of the horrors of the Peninsular War and its lasting legacy. Um, if, if, if I didn't know anything about uh, the Napoleonic era and I saw that image, I would assume it came from the First World War or even from maybe even the Spanish Civil War in 1936. Like it's just, it's that um, lasting in, uh, in popular memory. Absolutely. I mean, that was me thinking that because we had a French guest on today, perhaps, you know, this podcast would have managed to reach out to our friends on, on the near continent and uh, ingratiate them. And then we um, champion a, a picture of our uh, long dead king defecating on um, the French nation. Apologies to um, the three people, I think it is, who, who listen in France, such as the lack of interest that this podcast generates um, in, in France. Uh, setting aside the, the, the caricature, which, which is a, a great one. Um, yeah, Goya, hard to argue against. Um, Josh, what about you? Um, okay, so I'll just go with the one that I came up with first, although honourable mentions could fly, could, could, could take up the next half an hour if I was going to like ream them off. But um, I would go 
almost completely to the opposite of Goya. I would go actually uh, to a later artist, um, even though I would never have chosen for this because I would I really wanted someone who was alive during the period. But um, I would be very tempted to go with Edouard Dutel, uh, who was a French Academy painter um, in the 1880s, and he served as a soldier in a chasseur battalion, I think, in the Franco-Prussian War. And he, he, he painted the French army uh, in, a, in, a, in a brilliant way, in a brilliantly detailed, realistic way. And I, I cannot get enough of his stuff. Um, I suppose, though, I would have thought I'd have done exactly what I did with Goya and thought of him first and then said, actually, no, if I'm going to do that guy. I would do Messonnier, um, Ernest Messonnier. So actually, I would say Messonnier. Yeah. Uh, he did. He did Napoleon in 1814. Um, you know the one on the on Marengo, grey uniform, muddy field, dim column of soldiers in the background, lots of angry-looking marshals behind him. I would have gone with that. Fair enough. What I find really interesting about our choices this evening is that, with the exception of the 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 pictures um, that, that Gareth was talking about by the soldiers of combat, whether it's descent on Mauritius or whether it's um, dealing with, with the pirates, that we haven't gone for one of those big battlefield scenes. You know, none of us have turned around and said, what about Austin? I mean, yes, okay, I said Lady Butler's infantry squares, but to just defend that choice, that's because, as, as Ed Koss talked um, about in a, a lecture at Southampton a few years ago, you can look at the individuals in that painting and you see 10 or 20 different individual experiences of battle playing out within the space of a, what is quite a small canvas. It's incredible in terms of showing the diversity of experience and its impact on the human mind um, in, in the heat of battle. It's just a staggering painting. Um, but we haven't gone for, you know, the guards defending Hougamont. We haven't gone for Austerlitz or Borodino or whatever it might be. We've all gone for things that speak on a, a human level rather than something big and glorifying, which I think is, is interesting. Perhaps that's a historian's perspective. Perhaps it's just the fact that I picked people who kind of have a similar mindset to me on these things. Perhaps I've rigged it and the whole thing is deeply flawed. But I'd like to think that it's a, a positive indication of um, how we view art. It's been an absolute joy. Uh, I don't even know where we're at in terms of length of recording, but I'm sure the listeners aren't fussed. It's been a brilliant discussion. So Jackie, Gareth, Josh, and oh, he's not here anymore, Andre, thank you very much for this. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Absolutely great fun to meet everybody and to, to talk about art. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It was uh, a great discussion. Nice to meet everyone. That was Jacqueline Reiter, Andre Loez, Gareth Copeland and Josh Proven joining me to discuss the greatest painting of the Napoleonic era. You can find them respectively on Twitter at Late Lord Chatham, at Andre Loez, at GL Copeland 1 and at Land of History. All the images featured in this episode are freely available via Wikimedia Commons. The eagle-eared will have heard me mention a Napoleonicist bookstore at the start of this episode. I'm very pleased to announce that this new feature allows you to support the podcast 
whilst also enjoying a one-stop shopping experience for a whole host of Napoleonic titles. It also features the works of a number of folks who featured on the podcast, including Gareth Glover, Beatrice de Graff and Josh Provem. When you spend, the Napoleon Assist gets 10%, so check out the link in the description, have a browse of the listings, and hopefully pick up something that takes your fancy. As ever, a huge thanks to my Patreon supporters, whose generosity keeps this podcast going. You can find out more on how to join them in the link in the description. Particular thanks to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, John Haynes, Anna Bakulenko, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, Lucy Tatner, and Jim Deary, and my commander patron, Ger Brown. And if you want to influence future content, there is a vote open right now for those in the commander tier of patrons to decide the focus of the next themed month. Stay in touch via Twitter, where you'll find me at ZWhiteHistory, and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. I'll be back soon, as this month is going to feature four episodes, so keep your eyes peeled for more exciting content. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.